I've, I, the, the, this very famous chapter of God's Word just keeps uh, screaming at me from, from, from the depths of my heart and soul. And uh, it's one that chapter that all of us in this room could quote verbatim the whole chapter. It's, it's the chapter that you hear quite often every time maybe you go to a, a funeral or memorial service and you all know where I'm going right now. It's simply the 23rd Psalm, David's most famous Psalm, the one that we go to so often in time of need, the one that brings so much comfort in times of hurt and pain and grief. And, 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 I, and I just began to, to look at this text anew and afresh. It was several years ago, many years ago, when I remember kind of taking this text and looking at it verse by verse and, and how it describes this amazing God that we serve. David, the man after God's own heart, this mighty king, this mighty warrior, this awesome and, and powerful worshiper, David, he would pen these words, and they're so amazing. And it begins in Psalms 23 and 1 when he simply says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord and the Lord alone is my protector. He is my provider. He and He alone is my supply. I want to tell you something today. Your employer is not your provider. Your employer is not your provision. Your employer or the company you work for, the job that you go to, that is not your supply. Economy not your provider. Our provision does not hinge on how well the economy is doing today. Our provision doesn't hinge on whether our particular industry that we work in or is booming or whether it is faltering at the time. That is not where our provision comes from. That may be the conduit through which God is sending his provision at this current moment and time. But the provider never changes the method or the, or the conduit that it flows through. It may change. Some of those wells might dry up, but the ultimate life giver never dries up. That well never dries up. Our provision doesn't hinge on that. Our provision doesn't hinge on what the stock plan doing in our future, in our, our 401k or, or our retirement program or plan. None of that, our provision doesn't hinge on any of that. And yet we get so worked up. We get so worked up and we begin to think about, well, what if this don't come through? What if this doesn't happen? What if I'm, I'm hearing there's layoffs. I'm hearing this is going to happen. We have to remind ourselves of this promise from the Lord that he and he alone is our shepherd. He alone is our provider. We shall not want. The Lord is our provider. I will not go in lack. The truth of the matter is, is that every one of us in this room, we're still standing. <laughs> If you're here today, you're still standing. Every one of us can look over our look over our shoulder there. Have you mirror and see how that every step of the way, every part of the journey, the provider has been there. Have there been lean seasons and years and times? Has there been moments when there seems like there was more month than there was money? Certainly, there's been that in all of our lives. But he has been faithful through it all. He is our provider. The Lord is our shepherd. We shall not want. We shall not go in lack. He is our provider. Verse 2 says, he makes me to lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside the still waters. Verse 3 goes on to say that he restores my soul. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. There leads me beside still waters. When you, when you, you just get a, a visual there, can you just get a picture of that? When you think about walking beside still waters in this serene place of, of, of just total peacefulness and, and bliss, and he restores my soul. In a world that is so full today of worry, a, a world that is so full of anxiety and stress, and depression is on an all-time high attacking, it seems like, almost every person that I know. All these things that attack, they attack the soul, they attack the, main, they attack the mind of a person. And David is telling us that not only is he our provider, not only is he not going to let us go in lack today, but he is also our rest. He's our provider, but he is also our rest. You ask most people today, how are you doing? 
Some people you, you just learn not to ask that to. You, you see certain people in the aisle three in Walmart and you say, it's good to see you today. God bless you. I don't, don't make the fatal mistake of asking how are you doing because you're going to be in aisle three for about an hour hearing about how terrible everything is in the world and specifically their life. But a common response, one of the most common responses that you hear today, how are you doing? I'm just so tired. I'm just and over so tired. You hear it over and over and over again. I'm just weary. I'm tired. I, uh, people today, it seems like it's just a, a common thread that runs through all of society today. We're just weary. We're tired. Life has handed us so much stuff. There's so much that this mind and this soul, sometimes it's just more than we can process and handle and deal with at times. And so we just become weary. It's not just the physical fatigue that we battle. In fact, that's a, that's a minor thing. We can recover from physical fatigue, but it's the life is exhaustion that so many of us battle and deal with. Life is so full and life is so busy and life is overwhelming at times. Not e- even just with the, the simple day to day stuff that we face and deal with. Life is full of stressful situations. Life is full. There's no shortage of things to worry about today. The truth of the matter is, is you and I, none of us in this room, we don't have to look very far. We don't have to think very far. We don't have to think far past this morning service to find something that's worth worrying about in our heart. There's plenty of opportunity. There's more than enough. Stress is a killer. it, It will take you out. It's the leading cause of stroke and heart attack today. It's, it, it, it feeds cancer. You can ask the oncologist today. They will tell you that stress will literally feed cancer. Worry will kill you. Worry will take you out. I'm going to be honest with you. Worry is a little bit in my DNA. For several generations back on my maternal side, there, 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 there's a lot of worriers in my family. Every time a, a thundercloud rises up, they're putting everybody in the, in the hallway and putting mattresses on top of them. Worry, worry, worry. The big one's fixing to come. My grandparents have been living in the exact same house they have lived in for never gone off years. 60 years in the same house and not a single shingle has ever gone off the house. But still today, Still today, worry, worry. If, if I'm not worried about something, now I'm worried why I'm not worried because I'm supposed to be worried about something. So let me find something to worry about. But worry is a killer and God is our rest. He's our rest as believers. For those of us who have put our trust in God and his word, then we know that there is a better way. There is a better way than living a life of stress, living a life of depression, living a life is very oppressed and and filled with worry and stress and anxiety. His word is very specific when it comes to this subject of worry and stress. Jesus would say this. Jesus, these are words, these are letters in red in Matthew 6 when he said, do not worry about your life. Don't worry about tomorrow. If I clothe the birds of the air, And these, they don't even sow, and they don't reap, and they don't gather, they don't do anything. And if I'll do this for them, are you not much more valuable to me than these birds of the air? So why are you worried, Jesus is saying. Don't worry about tomorrow. He says, consider the lilies of the field. They neither toil nor spin. And yet Solomon, in all all of his splendor, was not arrayed like one of these lilies of the field. And now if God clothes the grass of the field, will he not much more clothe you? He will take care of you. He goes on to say, but seek first. Seek first. This is the key. This is the key that unlocks the door to our peace. This is the key that unlocks the door to, to that place of, of joy and that place of hope and that place where we realize that we're not going under. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, the right way of thinking, and all these things will be added unto you. Therefore, do not worry. He says, don't worry about these things that's going to happen tomorrow or won't happen because I'm your sufficient for today or its worries. You let me take care of tomorrow because I'm your provider and today I want to be your rest. 
I'll be your provider tomorrow. But today, while there's questions that are unanswered, right today, while there's things that, you, that you're perplexed about, today, while there's issues going on in your life that are very real issues, know this, I will be your rest. I will make you lie down in green pastures. Paul says in Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing. Don't worry about anything. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, peace of God. We can say those words really fast and, and, and they sound good, but do we really know, have we really experienced the true peace of God? Because he describes what that peace is. He said, it is the peace that surpasses all understanding. It's the peace that goes beyond my own logic. It's the peace that says, I, I, I can't explain this. It, it goes beyond my logic. I'm not supposed to feel this peaceful right now in my life. There's too much going on in my life for me to have this calm that's come over me and my heart and my spirit and my soul. It's the peace that goes beyond all of that. He said, if you will put your trust in me, if you will bring all of, give you the body, all of your fears, all of your worries, if you'll bring all of that to me, then I will give you the peace that goes beyond all understanding. I love what he says. He says, it's going to guard your heart and your mind. In Christ Jesus. It will guard it. In other words, what that means is, is I'm not going to eliminate all the stuff that brings stress into your life. That stuff's still going to happen. You're still going to have failure. You're still going to get bad news from the doctor. You're still going to have issues in your marriage. You're still going to have your children doing crazy stuff and you wish you could control it. There's still going to be financial battles to deal with. But know this, that when these things come, I've already put a guard up around your heart and mind. And when everybody else in the world is falling all around because because they're going on all under thing. You're going to have a peace in your heart. And you're going to be able to stand strong. There's a peace that goes beyond all understanding. And it will guard your heart and your mind. The truth is, is that sometimes he will make us to lie down in green pastures. I love these seasons of my life. I don't love them at the time. I don't love them at the moment. But as I look back, I see the truth is I, I'm learning to be very careful what I curse in my life. I'm being very careful not to curse the stuff that I don't like or the, the seasons that I want to call bad or the stuff that's going on that I don't like. And, and I'm even careful about the stuff that I want to call blessed in my things that I... Because, see, I have a very natural way of thinking. I have a very human way of thinking. And there's things that I call blessed that God's nowhere around. And there's things that I'm cursing that God's all up in the middle of it, working all things together for my good and making me better and stronger because of it. There have been many seasons in my life where I've been very tempted to curse that season prematurely. We say all the time around here, it's one of the common statements you hear is, don't curse your crisis. Don't curse your crisis, especially especially when you're in the middle of it. Those seasons, those events in our lives that we want to curse, and they turn out to be the greatest blessing in our life. When we look the when we look back, that door that didn't open in my life, the job that didn't come through for me, the break that didn't come in my life, the things we sometimes call blessings in our lives can sometimes be the worst thing that ever happened in our lives. Just ask the majority of the major lottery winners of the world. Now, I know we're all saying, well, I'd like to at least be tempted in that area. <laughs> Lord, at least just tempt me. I may fail, but tempt me anyway. Let me get the big Powerball. I'm ready for that $250 million. I'm, I just want to be tempted with that. But ask the majority of them years after their winnings, many of them, the majority of them, their ultimate that their huge financial windfall ended up being their ultimate demise. It destroyed everything in their life. And while they were screaming blessings, blessings, blessings on Saturday night, what they didn't re what they didn't realize was it was going to be the very thing that would destroy them. And for others who were going through that through that awful season of walking into a house where all the furniture's been emptied out, and there's just a note there saying I don't love you anymore, and you're cursing that moment. Meanwhile, you didn't realize that God was doing something inside of you. He was preparing you. He was emptying you out. He was bringing His presence into your life, and He was preparing you for something great in your future that would have never happened had you not gone through that dark, awful season and we're cursing the moment in our life. Then meanwhile, 
It was God doing something supernatural and great in our lives. So now I'm thankful for those seasons. I'm thankful for the moments in my life when he forced me. He made me to lie down in green pastures. I love those moments whenever all of a sudden I couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't fix it anymore. I couldn't even pray hard enough to make it all turn around. I couldn't muster up enough faith anymore in my own life. And it was in that moment he said, you just lay still, boy. Let me worry for you. Let me walk for you. Let me carry you while you can't walk yourself. And it was in those moments that he, in the middle of the greatest storms, in the darkest hours of my life, place I found, forced me to lie down in green pastures. And in that place, I found rest. In that place, I found refuge. In that place, and you've experienced it too, it's in those moments when we've exhausted everything that's within us. He's saying, you're finally where I want you to be. You're finally where I want. I've worked to save my marriage. I've worked to see my kids restored. I've worked to do to see my finances. I've worked and worked and worked and now I can't do anymore and I'm lying flat on the floor and God says, okay, you rest, baby. You rest, boy. It's my turn. It's my turn. He makes us to lie down in green pastures and I'm thankful for it. I'm so thankful for the seasons where he allowed every door to shut, where he allowed all relationships in the check bail the seasons where where there was more money month than there was money in the checkbook but because it was in those seasons that he made me to lie down in green pastures it was in those seasons where i found rest in him rest in him I'll tell you something that's what we need today we need the rest of god to fall on us you say, well, I'm sleeping eight hours a night. No, you're not. Your eyes are closed. And you're, you, you, you're kind of semi-unconscious, but you're not resting. You may be sleeping, but you're not resting. Just tired. That's why you wake up the next morning. And until you've had your cup of coffee, you are, you're just as tired as you was before you went to bed eight hours earlier. Because the, the body went to sleep, but the mind kept going. The soul Kept going, worrying about this. What's going to come of this? Vivid dreams, waking you up in the middle of the night. Where did that come from? What's going on? I'm scared to death. I'm worried. And then finally, somehow going back to sleep. But never resting. We need the rest of God. And David said, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. He wants to be our rest. But we can never experience those things. We can never the shit. If we never find him, the shepherd, the provider, the rest, we can't, we can't experience it until we look to him. It's been in those seasons, those seasons, those dark hours that David was talking about here. It's been in those seasons where I was positioned to be able to walk beside Steel waters for a little while. The truth is, is that when everything is grand, when everything is going my way, when all the bills are paid, when, when, when everybody seems to be wealthy, flying wise, and, and, and life is going good, I'll be honest with you. It's in those seasons that I'm flying 90 miles an hour up and down Highway 15. I'm missing it all. I, I, I'm too full. Life is too full, and life is too good, and life is too grand. But it's in those moments... Whenever he forces me and he makes me to lie down in green pastures, that then I'm able to stop. And just for a little while, I can actually see the handiwork of God to see what really matters in life, to find value in the things that are right here in front of us. The truth is we're complaining about so much. We're worried about so much. And all we have to do is just look right around us. Not very far to realize, God, you've been so good. You've been, look at what you've been right there with us the whole time. Look at my family. Look at my church family. Look at what you have done. We can never experience those things if we can never find true rest, we can never truly walk beside still waters as long as we're allowing fear and worry to consume our souls. I, I love some of you, a very few of you will remember a gentleman from South Alabama. He's going to be with the Lord now, but his name was Harold Lovelace. And I've never seen a guy, we come to know him in his 70s. 
And when I tell you in this guy, in the, in his seventies, this guy was traveling the country by himself, driving a car, going and speaking. He had more energy, positive attitude. Ten of us under 40 would have all together. This guy just went and went and went. He always had a positive attitude. He always had a great outlook. And he would call when you, when he called you, a lot of times you had to ignore his calls because if you got on the phone with him, you were going to be there for two and a half hours at the very minimum. And it was all him talking because he just had so much life he was wanting to pour out. And so a lot of us had a running joke that knew him said, you know what? I just, I just didn't have time for Harold today. I'm sorry, but, but Harold, I asked him when I said, where do you get your energy from? Is there a, is there a, uh, an energy drink you take or a cough? What is it that you are doing? He says, let me tell you what I do. Every day I take a vacation. Every day I take a vacation. I take a 12 minute vacation every single day. He says, I find a room where there's no one at, 12 minutes. And I, I, I turn the lights off where it's dark. I sit in a corner. I close my eyes. And for 12 minutes, and it's just 12 minutes, he says, I go in my heart, I go in my mind to the, my favorite place, the, my place of most calm, my, 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 the place where, where, where I find the most peace and presence of God. And I just hang out there. For some of us, it's Gulf Shores, isn't it? Sitting out there with those waves crashing in on those white sandy beaches. For some of you, you already got anxiety just thinking about that sand being in every crevice and all that. Uh, For some of you, it's on the top of the Rocky Mountains overlooking those snow-capped beautiful mountains, whatever it is. And he said, I would just go there. I'll just go there. And there was something about that rest, that rest, that true rest that rejuvenated his soul and his heart. And came and life came. Restoration. It's the season's of rest in our life, that he restores our soul. He said, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters, and he restores my soul. Now, this is a subject I don't know a lot about. In fact, I don't know anything about other than just what I've heard second and third hand. But when it comes to vehicle restoration, are there any people in the room today that are into that? That Good, that I can try to sound like an expert for a little bit. Vehicle restoration see the truth is if i take that 57 chevy truck and and it's all beat up and something and get all that and i i slap some paint on it and i go and this it needs a new fender so i find something and get it sculpted and molded to look like it's supposed to look or i buy that 1976 engine to put in it or and then i find a a a, a 58 chevy that that's got some seats that i can put or seat covers or whatever i can put in it let me tell you what i did i just fixed up an old truck that's what I did. It's nice. It's impressive. And you see it driving down the road. It looks nice. You're saying, man, look at that 57 Chevy. Man, wow, what a beautiful thing. But the truth of the matter is, is that's not truly restoring a 57 Chevy. That's just fixing one up. That's just making it pretty. That's just making it be able to operate restoration by its truest definition. And I've restored it back to its original place and purpose. In other words... Everything that it had to begin with, I have made all of it brand new again. We talked about it a few weeks ago when we talked about the potter at the wheel, how he made it again into another vessel. The, the, how he takes the same thing and he brings it to its original place. Can I tell you, that's what the rest of God does in us. It restores our soul. It brings us back to the place that we were originally intended and supposed to be. He's not just patching stuff up on us. He's not just fixing this and that to try to get us through another. And all the things when I take you, when I do the work, I do a complete work and I do a perfect work and all the stuff that the enemy has tried to steal from you, I'm bringing it all back and I'm bringing the original stuff back and everything that you thought was meant to destroy you and kill you, I am going to use that stuff to elevate you and magnify you and use you for a greater purpose. That's what the restoration of God does. I I counsel with married couples all of the time who have been through great failures and and, and whatever the case may be, loss of trust and infidelity and things that you think there's no way you could ever return back from. And I've watched, I've watched, not what Kevin Bates said, I'm just the guy sitting on the couch with him, but I watch through that battle. God does how he takes and he restores. In other words, well, we got through that battle. Hopefully we can make it on to the next leg of the journey. No, 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 no. God goes back to even before and he begins to make it all new again. And now they're honeymooners. Now their marriage is better than it's ever been even before the great train wreck. He restores our soul. He's in the restoration business, bringing it back to its original purpose and reason.
the third verse. Some of you are saying, man, you're only halfway there. There's six verses in this chapter. Now, believe me, the, the last three is quicker than the first three. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Right biblically simply means a right way of thinking. It's a right perspective. It's the right way of seeing things. We've oftentimes confused right thinking with right living. See, and so many times in religion, what we've done is we've gone and we put the cart in front of the horse. And when we speak of righteous living, and we think of that as someone who has it all together. So someone who's who's doing all the right things the right way. They're crossing their T's and they're dotting their I's just right. They're doing all the right stuff and not doing any of the wrong stuff. They're going down their religious checklist so that so that some but that feel good about ourselves at the end of the day. But that's called self-righteousness. And we all know what self-righteousness is. Our righteousness is as filthy rags in the sight of God. But when we begin to put things in its proper order, in the, in the right perspective, in the right order, and we begin to see it the right way, when we think it the right way, see, that's what righteousness is. When we understand that He, and He alone, is our provider, that He alone is our rest and our restorer, then, then we can allow Him to lead us in the path of righteousness. To view things the right way, to think the right way, to look as a man think the right way, to look at others the right way. It's righteousness. And the Bible says that as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. When we think the right things, we become the right things. But so many times we're trying to become the right things before we think the right things. In church and in religion, we've been the worst at it. We get people into the church and we say, now you got to do this and you got to do that. Don't hang out with these folks no more. Make sure you don't do this stuff anymore. Go down your religious checklist every day. Instead of seeing minds renewed and letting people understand and know who they serve, who they are, and whose they are in the kingdom of God, then they got a right way of thinking and then the lifestyle follows. It's simple. We'll then... The doing takes care of itself. If we think right, we'll do right, simply put. But it must be Him that leads us in the path of righteousness for His name's sake. Not a preacher. Not somebody's doctrine. Not somebody's idea of what you ought to do or not do. Now I'm righteous. But only as He leads us, as our provider, as our restoration And he gives us the path, the path of righteousness. Psalm 23 and 4, and this is where it begins to take a turn. This is where we go, this is where life, honestly, this is where we get to where the the rubber meets the road right here. This is where life happens. This is the verse that I often use many times in funeral services, ministering to people who are grieving. He says, yea, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. This is where everything changes. This is where it gets personal. You know, I, you know I, don't, I don't make light of what some people do and how they operate in church. It's just there's a certain way we do it. And I have no tell you this, there's a cast in anyone else or any other way of doing it or anything in our history at all. But, but I will tell you this, there's been kind of, we have some of these little Christian catchphrases that we use a lot. They're just kind of our go-to phrasing. And, and to be honest with you, I think some of it is kind of dried up a little bit. We need to come up with some new phrasing. We need to say it different because I think after a while it just becomes white noise to people. But you, you hear people say all the time, well, have you accepted Jesus as your personal Savior? You hear the preacher at the end of the service. If you've never accepted Jesus as your personal Savior. That's my imitation, by the way. (laughs) Depending on what church you're in. If you never accepted Jesus (laughs) as your... Break it again. I'm not going to beat the pulpit today. We still got a plexiglass. I'm I'm afraid I'll break it again. We'll be out another $300. You ever accepted Jesus as your personal Savior? Can I just be very honest that if I'm sitting in a church service 
And I've heard this glorious message, which is, which is describing and explaining these first three verses of Psalm 23, how that God is the one who provided all. He provided your salvation. He went to the cross and he died for you. And he's done all this for you. And he's your shepherd. He's your provider. He's your rest. He's your restoration. He'll do all these things. And all I've done up to this point is I've heard a description of this amazing, powerful God. And I want it. And repeat, I want it. So they say, if that's you, come to the front of this church. And repeat this prayer after me. And after that, you're saved. And now you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know of many people that it's really happened that way. And I'm just speaking for me. I don't think that when I just hear a great message about a great God, and even if I believe it, and I accept it, and I want it, and I pray the prayer to receive it, it's not personal at that point. It's just something that I want. It's just something that I desire. It's just something that, I, look, I, my life is going this direction, and I want it to go another direction, and I want it's not a God, and I want to be a part of his kingdom. And that's, that's all it is at that point. But it's not until I begin to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It's not until I walk out of the comfort zone of that church house with all the wonderful Christians around me and the preacher praying over me and going down in water and baptism. It's not until I get out there in the middle of life and life slaps me across the face. It's then that I discover the personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's there that he comes and he meets me where I am. And he ministers to me and I get to know him. Now it goes from having a knowledge of him, someone teaching to me about him and his goodness and his grace. And now I know it. See, there's a big difference. It's knowledge and knowing. I can know, I can have a knowledge of something in my head, but it's not till I live it. It's not till I experience it. It's not till he comes and meets me that then I know him. Then it's personal. So in verse four, it's where it gets personal for David. This is where it all changes. I share this verse often in funeral services because they are, there's so many elements of this verse that apply to what people are going through during that very difficult time of loss. Even though David wasn't necessarily referring to physical death, he was actually speaking about a literal valley that was often referred to as the valley of death or death valley. And this was many, many centuries before LSU Tigers. David was all too familiar with the grief, though, and the loss of death in his life. There's so many key words in this one verse. And he begins by saying, yea, though I walk. That word walk. Truth is, there are seasons in all of our lives where we don't have a sprint in us. Have you ever been there? There wasn't a run or even a jog in you. There are days when about the most you even have is to simply pick one foot up and put it in front of the other. We have to acknowledge this and we have to be okay with this. It's okay to be weak. Times our weakness that he's made strong. It's okay to be weak. We need to acknowledge that sometimes I don't, I can't put the face on and say everything's wonderful. Everything's great. Sometimes all I can do is just pick one foot up and put it in front of the other. It's in these moments that we have to just simply not give up. Don't give up in well doing. We might not be able to run. But we don't throw in the towel at that moment. We simply pick one foot up and we keep moving. Sometimes all we can do is walk. The next key word in this verse is through. Yea, though I walk through. See, know this, that whatever it is you're facing, whatever it is we're going through right now, it's all temporary. It's all a beach, a good season right now, and everything is great, and you're flying high. Life is wonderful, and it's just all a beach and a vacation for you right now. Guess what? It's temporary. Things are going to change. You're going to have a bad day. You're going to get a bad diagnosis at some point in your life, whatever it is. Maybe not medically, but in some way, you're going to get some bad news. But know this, it's temporary. When life is bad, it's temporary. It's all temporary. We're only going through the valley. We don't pitch a tent there. We don't pour a slab there. We don't build a house there. We know that when I'm going through it, it's just that. I am going through it, and I'm not going to stay here. The next word is valley. Valley. We will have valley seasons in our lives. It's, it's, it's true. It's going to happen. Life is not all mountaintop experiences. A life with God is not all mountaintop life. Some of my greatest moments in the presence of God was experienced 
in some of the darkest valleys of my life. We have all certainly experienced him on the mountain. We have. We, we, we all thank him and we praise him for all the wonderful, tangible blessings that he's brought into our lives. And those mountaintop times, we all thank the Lord for that. But if I'm being really honest today, as I look back over my life, the greatest blessings, the most growth that has come into my life, the deepest revelations that I have found has become, have come in the middle of the darkest valleys of my life. I love the next to the shadow. He speaks of the shadow of death, and I'm closing with this. He speaks of the shadow of death. See, here's the thing about a shadow. A shadow is dark. A shadow is intimidating. Uh, a shadow will, it'll breed fear in your life because it's dark. And it looms over, and, it, and it's intimidating. And it leaves us wondering. A shadow always has you wondering, what is that coming from? What is that all about? It's so dark right now. And there's so many unanswered questions right now. The, the, the shadow is so powerful in our lives if we allow it to be. I think about some of the old black and white. Ever notice, you know, like the, the old Twilight Zone stuff and all of that. The old black and white stuff. You ever noticed how the majority of each episode is really all about a shadow? The music. Give me some good horror music. No, I'm just kidding. The music and... The truth is, is that if the villain ever finally popped, if he just popped out in the beginning and consumed the, the victim or whatever, the show would be over. It would last two seconds. But throughout the show, they want to keep the suspense going. And so there's always this stairwell. And at the top of the stairwell, there's a light shining from somewhere. I don't know. There's not even electricity in the house. And it's at night. But there's a, there's a light that's shining to cast this shadow against the wall. And it's the shadow that we're so scared of. Can I tell you something? A shadow isn't real. A shadow has no substance. A shadow, a shadow can't lay a hand on you. A shadow can speak to you. A shadow can intimidate you. A shadow can scare you. But in a shadow can't even lay a hand on you. There is nothing to be scared of. This is the foundation of what we believe. It's not real. That even in death, to the believer, even death is not real. Do we believe that or do we not believe that? Then why in the world aren't we celebrating and shouting and screaming and hollering every time we lay somebody to rest who's a child of God? Cry for a little bit because of our loss. But thank you, Jesus, because this ain't real. This ain't real. If I believe what I say I believe, even death has no substance in my life. Even death can't touch me. Even death can't take me. This is the reason why the Apostle Paul wrote in, in Romans 8 that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded, God, which is in Christ, not even death will be able to separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So David said, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear. Fear not. Fear not. Why? Because you're with me. You never leave me. You never forsake me. You are with me always. And I want you to notice in verse 4, I told you everything changes in verse 4. This is where it truly becomes personal, and we see it even in the writings. Even in the writings. I didn't see this until just a few years ago. I've been quoting the scripture my entire life since I was a little child. I didn't see it until just a few years ago. In verse 4, it is our shepherd. Pronoun for God changes. Verse 3, he is, the Lord is our shepherd. He makes me to lie down. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. But listen to what happens in verse 4. Everything changes. All of a sudden, when he's walking through the valley of the shadow of death, now it's personal. He says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Now it's personal. Now I know him. You are walking with me. Before, it was just preaching a sermon about a great God. But now, it's you who's with me. It's not him. It's you. You're with me. It becomes Verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence 
of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup runs over. David says in Psalm 27 and 2, when the wicked come against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and my foes, they stumble and they fail. Verse 3, though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. What is he confident in? You have to go back to verse 1 where he says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? So Paul, again, in Romans 8, he says it like this, like David did. What then shall we say to these things? All these things that's going on, death and persecution and tribulation, all these things. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? The presence of our enemies in our lives does not mean that there's an absence of God. He is a very present help in our time. Of trouble. I just, I've got to close, but I got so much, I got so much in these two last pages I want to say, but I'm just going to close there by just simply saying, whenever we get this, when we get a grasp of this, the fact that even though you're facing the greatest enemy of your life, it seems like all hell is breaking loose in your life, it seems like you're battling on every front, this is what our God does. He comes, and in the presence of those enemies, in the presence of that war, right now, the enemy that's coming against you, he prepares a beautiful table. Can you just get a vision right now of God snapping the white linen tablecloths and spreading it across your table, bringing out the finest of China. Meanwhile, he's got the best chef in the kitchen preparing a filet mignon, perfectly medium rare. And, and he's got the, the wonderful potatoes all grotten being prepared and warm bread rising, bringing some room temperature butter to the table and a wonderful wine or Coca-Cola or whatever it is that you eat at your white linen cloth table. And you're sitting at your table and you're enjoying this amazing meal that God has prepared for you. Meanwhile, your enemy's got to stand around and watch it. When I talk about your enemies, I'm not talking about your mother-in-law. I'm talking about the enemy of your soul. Can you imagine? I love you. You know I do. Can you imagine? Just get a picture of it today. He prepares a table before me, but he doesn't just prepare a table. He does it while my enemy's got to stand back and look. And he's powerless He can't do anything to me as long as I understand and I know that he is my provider, that he is my rest. Meanwhile, my enemy is just sitting there looking. Well, if he ever doesn't get it, if he ever lets this slip out, if he ever lets this revelation get past him, he's already walked through the valley of the shadow of death and he found that he didn't have to fear there because he found out that God was with him. But and now now I'm trying to I'm trying to do everything I can. But now there's this beautiful table baby and he's eating and he's enjoying life. What can I do? And he becomes this little sucky thumb baby over in the corner don't let the enemy of your life win and he says I'll surely goodness and mercy I love this part I'm supposed to already be quitting by now I'm supposed to already be done but I'm sorry I just I get excited when I think about the goodness and the mercy of God and how it follows me all the day so many people think I gotta go find grace I gotta go find mercy if I ever get good enough God will give me his grace he'll give if I can ever get it all right and I can become righteous then I'll be good enough to go to church I'll be good enough to have but here's what here's the story here's the real story I'm, I'm stuttering because I'm so excited and I just can't help it right now but good it follows me it pursues me it never stops and every now and then every now and then I just stop because life has been so exhausting every now and then I just stop because I've had too many failures in my life and I think I can't go another foot another another foot or another moment another step and all of a sudden that grace and mercy just because it's been pursuing me and chasing me now that I stopped it just tackles me and it overwhelms me and it takes me under goodness and mercy it pursues me and it follows me if you don't feel his grace and mercy today just stop just stop let him smother you today let him take over fell in the house of the lord forever would you stand with me today i don't have to go to the gym this week please don't put that video on facebook I look like a mess, I'm sure. But I want to tell you something. You want to get me excited about something? Start talking about the grace and the mercy of God. The endless, reckless love of God. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear not because you're with me. Would it be okay if we just sing a song together before we go? It's 11.59 and you're supposed to be gone by 12. But will you forgive me if you're a guest today? Normally it's 12. 
into as we worship. But can we just worship for a moment? And here's what we're going to do as we worship and we sing today. Is we're reminded again of the endless and the reckless love of God. I want you to let him just come and meet you where you are. We can have an altar service. This altars are open. If you want to come and kneel at the front of this church, you're welcome to. But I want to tell you something. He's pursuing you. He'll come to where you are right now in your greatest need. Just stretch a hand toward heaven if you need him. You don't even have to do that. You may not have the strength to do that. Just say, God, I need you. I'm acknowledging today and I'm stopping. I'm saying I need you in my life. Be my provider. Be my rest. Be the one who walks with me through the greatest valley in the hours of my life. And follow me. Be with me all the days of my life. Let's sing together. Your spirit lives within me. 
with you today to church. I thought about it a moment ago. Everybody say scrunch in when you get in the car because two more people are going home with us. Goodness and mercy. His peace it will follow you all the day, all the week. And now may you go in his peace, go in his power, and may his Holy Spirit overshadow you every moment of this week. In the name of Jesus. Amen.